how does this apply to us now? Well, we may not be under the law, that is the law of Moses, but we are not lawless. Right? We are what, under what Paul metaphorically calls the law of Christ. That is, Jesus is our Lord, and he rules us by his spirit through his word. And what we have here is part of scripture, that very word. Uh, all scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, including the Old Testament, is God-breathed, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, and so, the law of Moses reflects the character of God as applied to God's people under the Old Covenant. It meant to show the people of Israel how to love God and love neighbor in that context. The New Testament, that's the documents of the New Covenant under which we are under, shows how this law of love is applied in light of the coming of Christ. And so as we read the Old Covenant, we need to apply it, not directly as if we were Israelites, but in light of its fulfillment in Christ. And it's the Spirit who guides us to do that uh, through the New Testament. So we are not under the law of Moses, not under it as law, but it's still God's word for us to be read, honored, and obeyed in light of Jesus Christ and the changes that he brings. Nine of the commandments, including this first one, are repeated and indeed magnified in the New Testament. So of course we must obey them from the heart. That is what the Spirit leads us to do. One of them is transformed to a different level. And so obedience for us will look very different than obedience for the Israelites. We will see that later on in our series. But before God gave them the law, he reminded them of his grace. In Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, before God gives them the commandments, that's what he says first. He spoke all these words and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice that? He rescued them first and then gave them the law. He didn't say, here's the law, and if you keep it, I will rescue you from Egypt. No, 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 no. He saved them from Egypt to be their God. He established a God-people relationship with them. And since he has rescued them, since he is their God, he tells them how to live as his people. And that's the same thing for us in the New Covenant, isn't it? God saved us first, and then he tells us how to live for Jesus. He doesn't say, do this, don't do that, do this, and if you succeed, you'll be saved. No, 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 no. He saved us by his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He saved us through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus, who died for us on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He saved us and now we are his. He is our God. We are his people. And having saved us, he tells us how to live as his people. Just like he did for Israel. After reminding them that he is their God, he is the one who saved them, the very first commandment God gave to them, in verse 3, is this. You shall have no other gods before me, or no other gods in my presence, or no other gods before my face. You see, Israel lived in a context where people worshipped many different gods. Could the Lord 
or in Hebrew, Yahweh, could he just be another one? Could they add him to their other gods? Or could they add other gods to him? And the answer is no, cannot. If Yahweh is your God, then he is your God exclusively. That's the deal. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt. He's the one who rescued them. He's their only savior. He's to be their only God. And you see this fleshed out in that next part of the law, the covenant code I mentioned just now. If you go to chapter 20, verse 23, uh, God says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, or shall, uh, or nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. In chapter 22, verse 20, uh, God says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord, of lo Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction, that is thoroughly destroyed. In chapter 23, verse 19, uh, it says, the second half of the verse, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which probably refers to pagan practices uh, in the worship of their gods. And God warns them in chapter 23, verse 24, not to bow down to the gods of the nations which live in the land where they're going or to serve them, but to utterly overthrow them, break their pillars in pieces. And he says in verse 32 to 33, at the end of this, he says, don't make a covenant with the people in the land and their gods because they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you, he says. See, all this is saying they are to worship Yahweh alone. One generation later, Moses reiterates the law uh, in the book of Deuteronomy for the next generation who are about to enter into the promised land. And in chapter 5, he's going to repeat the Ten Commandments. And when it comes to expand on it, in Deuteronomy 6, he'll say this in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Israel is to have one God, only one. So their loyalties must not be divided. They're not to give themselves 50% to Yahweh, and then 25% to Molech, 10% to Baal. You know? No, 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 cannot, cannot. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their might, with all their soul. And they were to show that love by obeying his word and teaching it to the next generation. So Moses continues, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So Israel was to be faithful to one God and to show their love for him by obeying his commandments from generation to generation. Well, how did Israel go in keeping this first commandment? Even before Moses gave this speech in Deuteronomy reminding them of the law, Israel had already started to break this first commandment. You know, when they came out of wandering in the desert for 40 years, they come to the plains of Moab, it's very, very close to the promised land. Uh, well, it says in Numbers 25, verse 1, that the people began to haul with the daughters of Moab. These invited people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is even before they entered the promised land or anything like that. Later on, after God brought them into the land, a couple of generations later, we read in Judges 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. 
in verse 11. Verse 12, they went after other gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. And so God gave them over to their enemies as he warned that he would do. And then when they cry out to him for mercy, he's moved to pity, and he'll send judges to save them. And they'll be faithful while the judge is alive, and then when the judge dies, what happens? They turn back. They're more corrupt than their fathers, and they go after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. And so the cycle continues, round and round and round. Eventually, God gave them David, king after his own heart. David sinned in other ways, but not in this one. He was loyal to God with all his heart. But his son Solomon didn't wholly follow God the way David did. And in his old age, we're told in 1 Kings 11.5, he went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Did what was evil in God's sight. So when he died, God divided the kingdom. The northern kingdom, called Israel, lasted less than 300 years before God sent them into exile. As he warned, he would do. 2 Kings 17 tells us the reason for this is because they broke the first and, and indeed the second commandments. We're looking at the first one today. Uh, you see it there in 2 Kings 17 verse 7 and 8. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations. And likewise, the southern kingdom, kings like Manasseh, Encourage the worship of all kinds of gods, introduce all kinds of foreign religious practices, even in God's temple. There were reformers like Josiah, but not enough to quench God's wrath against his people. Eventually, they too were taken into exile. But before the exile, God sent his prophets, both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, to call them to repentance. The prophet Hosea pictured Israel as a wife who was unfaithful to God, her husband. And yet one day, God promised through Hosea, beyond the exile, he will take them back. He will take her back. And the names of the Baals will no longer be on her lips. The prophet Ezekiel, speaking in chapter 16, in graphic terms about how God made a covenant with his people, and the picture of that was marriage. But they had prostituted themselves and committed adultery with the other gods, the gods of the nations. And so judgment and shame would come upon them. And yet beyond that, Ezekiel looks forward to a time when God atones for their sin and establishes an eternal covenant with his people. Israel failed to keep that first commandment over and over and over again, which is a terrible thing because they had a covenant with the God who had saved them. With God, their husband, who wanted exclusive love and loyalty. But they acted like an unfaithful spouse and went after other gods as well. When Jesus came, he came, among other things, as the true Israel. Everything that Israel was meant to be Jesus was. He always kept the law. Remember how Satan tempted him to take a shortcut to the kingdom? He said, you can, you can fulfill your destiny as, as a ruler of the whole world, as you're meant to do, and you can shortcut 
instead of going to the cross, I show you another way. Bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus kept this first commandment. He's always loyal to his heavenly Father. And so he, the sinless one, was able to make that atonement for his people and establish a new covenant by dying for our sins under the judgment of God. The failure of Israel, the failure of us to keep this commandment was born by Jesus. So what about us who are in the new covenant? How does this command apply? Does it command apply to us? Oh yes, of course it does, isn't it? Right? It applies to us just as much as it applied to the Israelites. Right? God is the, all, the one and only God who rescued them from Egypt. And friends, there is only one God who has saved us from sin and Satan and hell. Indeed, from the time of creation itself, there's only been one true God to be worshipped. That will never change. What has changed is that we now know the identity of this one God to include his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas in the Old Testament, God says in Isaiah chapter 45, I am God, there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The New Testament tells us that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so worshipping Jesus, God the Son, is part of obeying this first commandment. And so in the book of Revelation, we see all the angels and indeed every creature in heaven and on earth saying, to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He is worthy. The Son rightly shares in the worship that is due to the one true God. And that is not just bowing before him in in adoration and praise. Remember how Jesus said in Matthew 10, we saw it in our series just a few weeks ago. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Worshipping Jesus involves giving him our ultimate loyalty, for he deserves nothing less. But we are not to worship other gods. When the gospel came to the Thessalonians, they didn't just incorporate Jesus into their pantheon of gods. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, they turned to God from idols. They turned from idols, they turned to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, though there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. And then in chapter 10 he warns, yeah, all the terrible things that happen to the Israelites uh, when they worship other gods, that they are actually warnings for us. Chapter 10, verse 6, he says, These things took place as examples for us. We've got to look at what happened to Israel and say, that's a warning. That we may not desire evil as they did. 
And so he warns the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Some of them had been participating in pagan rituals and sacrifices. He says, no, 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 you can't do that. Those sacrifices are offered to demons. And he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? For as we cannot, we must not do anything that will indicate participation in the worship of other gods. Are these people in Corinth, they were coming, sharing here, the Lord's Supper on Sunday, and the weekday they go to idol temple and do something else there. Cannot, cannot. You cannot say, I was offering a sacrifice to this idol and all the time I was thinking of Jesus, so that's okay. Any more than you can say, I was having sex with a prostitute all the time I was thinking of my wife, so that's okay. Cannot, it's not okay. And if you've done that, then, then God calls you to repent. The Apostle John tells us at the end of his letter, the first letter, that Jesus Christ is the one true God and eternal life. And then he lovingly warns us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Friends, if we know Jesus, if we belong to him, we are really to have no other gods. Jesus is our only savior. He is to be our only God. When I was in India, I often saw pictures of Jesus together with pictures of other deities. People just added him to the list of gods. But you can't do that with Jesus. Either he is Lord or he is not. And if he is, then the very first thing he says is that he wants our complete loyalty. Do not think you can mix the Christian faith with any other religion. You cannot. If you've been bought with the blood of Christ, you belong to Christ. No one else. No ancestor worship, no idol worship, no interfaith worship where the worship of God is mixed with the worship of other gods. No getting married in church today and idol temple tomorrow. Worship God and Him alone. And it's not just about us as individuals. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus gave himself to wash us clean and make us his own. The new covenant that the prophets look forward to was sealed with his blood. He loves us, gave himself for us. And he's preparing us for the day when he will present us to himself. In the Old Testament, God's marriage to his people was a metaphor. But in the New Testament, we realize that Christ and the church, that's the reality to which marriage is actually pointing. We are the bride, betrothed to Christ, waiting for our wedding day. As God's church, let us not be unfaithful to him. Well, we have seen so far that the primary way in which this first commandment is to be obeyed is that we are to have nothing to do with the worship of other gods. But in the New Testament, it's not just gods of other religions that are considered idols. Uh, in Philippians 3.19, Paul speaks about the enemies of the cross among the Philippians. And their God, he says, is their belly. 
They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, they live for the pleasures of this world. So that is what they worship. In Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Right? Covetousness is this strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions. That's the case here. And it's idolatry because for the covetous person, the most important thing in life is, is getting more and more. Paul warns us in Ephesians 5, verse 5, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous or greedy, that is an idolater, Notice he calls it an idolater. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. I will talk about covetousness more when we look at the 10th commandment, which is specifically about that. But even just for today, just notice how the first commandment is linked back to the 10th by saying the covetous person is idolater. Because when we're covetous or greedy, that is idolatry because the love of money or whatever it is that we covet takes over God's right to our love and our trust and our obedience. That becomes the thing we worship. By extension, therefore, we could think of many things that could potentially become idols in our lives. Not just money. It could be power, pleasure, prestige, comfort, relationships, particular relationships, family, work, Ministry, security, I mean, the list is endless. Now, this is a little bit different from the main application, right? Because many of these things are not wrong in themselves. In fact, there might be really good things for which, with, with which God blesses us and we receive as blessings from him and we're grateful for that. Religious idols are inherently wrong because in and of themselves, they are rivals to the true God. But these things, are, they are only idols if they usurp God's place in our lives. So how do you know if something is an idol for you? Well, one question you might ask is, do I love this more or do I love Jesus more? And how do you know? Well, remember how in Deuteronomy, Israel was to love God and obey his commandments. Jesus said the same thing to us. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's what he said, isn't it? So here's a question you might ask yourself if you want to determine if something's an idol. Have I, or would I, be willing to sin in order to serve or please or keep that person or thing? Have I, or am I willing to, disobey God's commandments to meet the demands of this person or thing. Because if that is what you do, or that's what you're willing to do, then no matter how good that thing might be in and of itself, that thing is in danger of being an idol for you. Put it back in its place. God doesn't want 50% of our heart and then we distribute the rest among you know, different people, different things, different roles and responses. No, no, no. Jesus wants our 100% loyalty. All those other things might still be there, but they find their rightful place under him. So that whatever we do, we do 
for the glory of God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Spend a few moments of quiet reflection before God as we ponder individually on what we've heard from God's word today. Let's take some time to examine ourselves. And have there been times and places in our lives where we have compromised in our devotion to God alone? Have there been times where we've crossed the line from respecting people of all religions to participating in idolatry? Are there things in our lives which we love and cling to more than we love God? Are there things for which we have been willing to break God's commands for them? And if so, let's bring that privately before God in repentance. Let's remember that Jesus died for us. He took the punishment on our behalf because he really does love us. And he wants us to be exclusively his. And know that because Jesus died for us, we can experience the joy of sins forgiven. Let's also consider if there are things in our lives which are not idols, but, but we know could potentially become idols if we're not careful about them. Let's name them privately before God. They might seem very attractive, Let's take a few moments to realize how empty or worthless they really are compared with Jesus and what he's done for us.
and ask God for wisdom in dealing with them carefully and rightly under him. confessed our sins privately, let's do so corporately now as the bride of Christ, the body of God's people together. We say, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, creator of everything, judge of everyone, we admit that we have sinned against you in thought, speech and action and deserve your just punishment. We truly repent and are sorry for what we have done. Have mercy on us, merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us all that is past. Enable us to serve and please you in a fresh way. To the glory of your name. Amen. The Bible not only tells us that there is one God, but also that there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. And that one mediator gave himself as a ransom for all of us so we might be forgiven. So let's love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Amen.